Welcome to the Practice Impossible Podcast, where your host, Jude Pierre, MD, also known as Coach JPMD, discusses medical practice topics that will guide you through the maze that is the business of medicine and teach you how to increase profits and help populations live long. Your mission, should you choose to accept, is to listen and be transformed. Now, here's your host, Coach JPMD. So today we're joined by Josh Koleski. He's an attorney. He's actually my attorney, licensed in uh, Florida as well as uh, Wisconsin. And we're going to talk about wills, trusts, estates, and uh, financial planning that he does in his practices and his practice in Florida. And uh, he counsels his clients through uh, the estate planning and corporate transactions. And uh, he's got over 20 years of experience, real world experience, and he knows how to bring money-saving solutions to his clients and, and planning solutions as well. And uh, he's helped me tremendously as well as some family friends. So welcome, Josh, to the Practice Impossible podcast. Yeah, I appreciate you having me, Jude. Thank you. So, uh, you know, should I call you Deacon Koleski or... No, uh, that's not... No, <laughs> no, so... The- so I'm glad you brought that up. So, so as, as we talked about earlier, I'm I'm going through the uh, formation of the permanent diaconate in the Catholic Church. That's a four year formation. I am approximately one month into it. Okay. <laughs> and and basically the way it works is we've got four years of academic study, spiritual formation. It's a ton of it's a ton of work. I'm super excited about it. My wife and I went through a formal discernment through the diocese which took about six months, a uh, six-month application process. I mean, I'm, I guess I'm more than a year into it, really, but formation is new. And the way it works, basically, is the church, through the bishop, through our bishop, will decide which men are called to the diaconate on behalf of the entire church. And, uh, you know, we're basically told that we are presenting ourselves for the possibility of the diaconate all the way up until the day before the ordination. So, the, the church will decide. And my only goal is to say yes to our Lord. So, we're yeah. we're going with it. And as you, you know, you know, I'm pretty much a type A and I like to be in control. So, for the first time in many years, I'm I'm letting God take complete control. And I'm, I'm basically just saying yes and, and going with the flow. It's, it's not my nature, but we're doing what we can. So, I'm very yeah. excited. It's a great journey. That's cool. I know you were pretty excited about it when I, when I first learned about it. And I, and I have to be honest, I was a little confused because I, I went to my fiance and I said, Hey, you know what? Josh is actually, I think going to be a priest. I'm like, he's going, I'm like, she's like, you, you're, he's married. What are you talking about? That's not how that works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, so. the church, so the, the, the diaconate's been in the church, you know, since the acts of the apostles really, but it became transition deacon really f- for probably a thousand years. So the first thousand years there were permanent deacons in our church and uh, the, for a variety of reasons, the it became transition. So from a man going into the seminary, studying to become a priest, he's ordained mm-hmm. a deacon, typically, you know, six months to a year, he's a deacon, and then he's ordained a priest. And then with the Second Vatican Council, the church decided to restore the permanent diaconate, understanding the need for men that are living in the world to be a bridge, essentially, mm-hmm. between mm-hmm. the church and the world, where the hope would be that deacons can be a servant to the church showing the congregation what we're all called to do, which is diakonia, which is service for each other as Christ was. And then at the same time, you know, to be able to be that the bridge from the laity to the church so that the bishop and the priests understand the needs of the congregation so they can be service served properly. So it's a 
it's an awesome role. You know, it's one that can't be done by a man. It needs to be done by the Holy Spirit. And a man just says, yes. So we're, we're in the middle of that. Uh, I've got a lot of my brothers that are in the formation with me that, you know, I think we're probably all just sort of wondering, like, what are we doing? And then we realize it's not about us. It's, it's what God's asking of us. So we just need to accept that and know that we're, we're not alone on our journey. So it's, it's super exciting. I know I had a client when I told them about it, they said, does this mean I need to find a new attorney? And I sort of laughed and I said, it doesn't really work that way. So the, we, our service to the church is, is, we're get, we give it to the church, but we, we don't necessarily work in the church mm-hmm. in a, an employment setting. So we'll, I'll continue to do what I'm called to do as an attorney, which I love serving families, which is fantastic. You know, 22 years now into it. And then if God willing, be ordained in four or more years or whatever it might be by the bishop's call and then, and then have a dual role, which is, which is really cool. I'm excited about it. Cool. So, so this episode, uh, we're going to do something different. We haven't done this before uh, with our guests, but because you're an attorney, because you have the experience, um, and because of the way physicians learn these days, we we learn by by scenarios, by cases and things that we come up against. And so, uh, I'd like to kind of do an episode where we discuss case scenarios, and you know, what would you do in certain situations? And uh, I think we kind of discuss which ones uh, that we would do this. I'm not sure which ones you're going to bring. But let's say you're a young doctor starting off and you've got no assets, no family or kids and joining a hospital group with a fairly good salary. What would you tell that doctor that he needs? I mean, I'd say at a baseline, it's I think one of the challenges I run to with probably young physicians, but it's probably a statement that applies to young professionals is that there's kind of a misperception that they don't need to worry about certain things like estate planning or even just, you know, how they want to organize their finances until they're further along. And I find that that's a bit of a challenge because if they go down the road and it's the wrong road, it's it's costly and time consuming to back up and start over. So I would prefer to have my young physician clients assemble a team of advisors as a starting point that they would want to rely on. An attorney, financial planner, accountant, the needs that they'll have in the beginning may be modest, but they'll likely grow with time. So if they can develop a relationship based on trust, they'll they'll be able to make the right steps. And then specifically to estate planning, usually my physician clients, uh, maybe not so much newer physicians, but certainly my established physicians will not only want to think about estate planning, which we'll talk about in greater detail later, they'll, they'll want to talk about asset protection. How do they make sure that what they have or what they'll accumulate is protected um, in the event that there's a malpractice claim or, or just generally, if, you know, mm-hmm. I find that a lot of physician clients are concerned that, that they're a physician. And if they get in an auto accident, they're just going to get sued just because of what they do for a living and the perception that they have a big income or, or lots of assets. So if a young doctor starting out, even with modest assets understands that they can build from ground zero, a proper asset protection plan, built inside of their estate plan, you know, it, it's, it's highly functional. It's not co- necessarily complicated, but it's protecting themselves from the beginning. So, you know, I will typically go through relatively easy uh, asset protection strategies and then build it typically around an estate plan. And, mm-hmm. and just really from an, the, the concept of an estate plan or that term is somewhat misunderstood. I've got a lot of clients, young doctors really in particular, that will say, well, I don't really have an estate, so I don't really need a plan. They just, and they'll say, well, I just need a will. And in reality, a will is an estate plan. It's a, it's a type of an estate plan. So 
you know, even a, a, a relatively simple will that says who's going to get someone's assets when they pass away, but also a power of attorney to govern mm-hmm. management of financial decisions. And then I'm, I'm never surprised with any physician client that I represent or anyone in the medical field, really, when I ask the question, you know, do you have a medical directive? It's almost always no. And I think sometimes it's the old expression that the cobbler's kids don't have great shoes. And so just to think about having even a very simple healthcare directive, or, or there may be a few, so that decisions are managed by the people you decide. And so it's, it doesn't have to be complicated. What I do figure out is you build uh, what might be a simple estate plan. And then as someone's life changes, perhaps they get married, start a family, accumulate assets, then they just build on it. It's really no different than like having a starter house when you graduate from school. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not necessarily the one that you're going to finish in, but it, it's functional. It's when you like, and then you can grow into something bigger. Yeah. So, so you mentioned power of attorney, because I, I, I know the importance of a power of attorney, especially in my elderly population that, you know, maybe a widowed or, or, uh, or not married, what does it mean? What What is a power of attorney? I mean, for those that don't really know, and they think that that's a more of a legal term that they, they'd give someone to, you know, sign documents for them. So what does that mean to a physician who has no, no, no family or no one to no spouse? So it's, it's, I mean, it's probably a good starting point is to differentiate types of powers of attorney at just a high level. The first of which would be a financial power of attorney. The second is as a healthcare power of attorney, mm-hmm. the adjective helps us. So the financial power of attorney is um, oftentimes very broadly written, giving someone uh, the broad authority to manage financial decisions. It could be to take control of assets. It could be make an investment change, you know, and really it could also maybe be to deal with a health insurance company. So, you know, if I, if I'm acting on my wife's behalf to manage a, a decision for her that's going to cost money, I may have to contact the insurance company. So having a power of attorney f- for my wife or from my wife rather, would give me that authority. So we would usually recommend a very broad financial power of attorney, or at least as a starting point. But I can tell you there's many cases where we'll have a fairly limited power of attorney. And and a classic example would be with a real estate transaction. So I actually did this with my wife when we moved to Florida 20 years ago. I was practicing in Wisconsin. I didn't really have the luxury of coming down to look for houses. I was trying to transition down. And so I gave my wife a special power of attorney to manage a real estate transaction on my behalf. You know, back in 20 years ago, we didn't do things as digitally as we do now, but the idea was to give her a specific authority. And then once the authority was no longer needed, the power of attorney went away. Mm-hmm. We, we don't see that overly frequently, but it, it is a useful tool. We tend to recommend for clients to have a broad document and, and typically the, it's broad also from the timing perspective. It's typically available right away for use, but then it, it, it almost never has an end date. And it, and so okay. in other words, I, I might give, I do, in fact, I did give my wife a power of attorney, uh, very broad, gives her the, all the kind of financial authorities you can possibly imagine to ma- do things for me and really for our family. And it doesn't have an end date uh, other than, you know, the end date is when I die. So it's a living document mm-hmm. on the healthcare side. That term's obviously, you know, a little easier to, to get your arms around, but it's just to make sure we manage medical decisions. You know, here in Florida, we often call that a healthcare surrogate, but some states use the term healthcare power of attorney, some healthcare proxy, but the concept's essentially the same, which is 
If I'm not able to manage a medical decision, I can give the authority to someone else to do so. And then, and a little side note, which is something that I'm, all physicians learn about certainly is that I always include in a medical directive a HIPAA release. HIPAA, as you as you know, Jude, you've been in practice for a long time. You know, it's been around since really 1996, although the part the privacy rule came into being in 2005. And really, in the beginning, I don't think that was really enforced very well. So, you know, I could go to the doctor, talk about my wife's care, and they were fairly liberal in giving information. The game's changed a lot now, so there's some fairly stiff financial fines if there's HIPAA breaches. So, so we always think about the healthcare power of attorney coupled with a release under HIPAA. And it, it's it's kind of intuitive. How, how can I expect my wife to manage a medical decision for me if she doesn't have access to information? So we're really just, just marrying up those two. So you would see that in a, in a typical healthcare directive mm-hmm. to do both manage decision, but also access information. So let's go back to the power of attorney for the finances though. I, I had a patient the other day say, well, I have a child, I have some assets, I'm going to sell my house. And, but that child has had some legal issues, drug issues or whatever, not trustworthy to manage her finances should something happen to her. She was a little older. So how is, can you assign it to someone else or an entity or um, a bank or how does that work if you don't have a a person to assign a power of attorney to do? Yeah. I mean, that's a challenge. So the Florida statutes in particular states are similar, contemplate the possibility of a, an institutional agent on a power of attorney. I, I have not worked with any in Florida. In fact, they all shy away from it. So it, we mm, tend to look okay. for people. I, I'm a, I'm a big believer in thinking about who's close to you, like who's in the inner circle mm-hmm. first. So, and because power of attorney is really predicated on trust. I'm giving someone broad authority to manage a financial decision. That's a big deal. You know, yeah. someone could take advantage of it. So we want to make sure we're smart about who we designate. But to your point, you know, what do you do if your inner circle isn't as great as we would like it to be? There are certainly options beyond that. The one that I've used frequently in the recent past is to have professional fiduciaries engaged. So individuals who hold themselves out to act professionally on a power of attorney, they can do that also on a healthcare directive, but they're, they're paid, they're paid to perform a service and, Mm -hmm. you know, they're held to a standard because they're a fiduciary. And if they blow it, you know, we have to, we have recourse. Okay. Um, I, I, I don't see that used frequently because when I bring up the concept, most of my clients will say, well, wow, that's a stranger. I don't know if I want a stranger having access to my assets. And so then they end up digging deeper and looking for someone that they trust. It could be a, an advisor they work with. Um, I have some clients that will name their accountant. Some will name an attorney. I, I certainly don't volunteer that role. I don't wish to be in that position unless it's for a family member. But um, on occasion, we'll, you know, we just have to dig deep. We look at who's around us that we trust. Um, I, and having a, a loved one that's, that's not trustworthy, that's unfortunate. But we have to then just search, okay, who else can we find that we would trust to have access to our financial information, but then also on the, on the medical side, cause it's a two, it's a two part question, really. Sure. Sure. So let's go to the second case. This case is probably would mirror me <laughs> 15 years of practice. I had no will. I had no power of attorney. I had none of this about what, seven, eight years ago when, when we first met and uh, you know, four kids, what should a physician have in place? And I think you answer that, you know, you have to have the power of attorney. But in the healthcare surrogates, but what are some of the horror stories you've seen 
in a, in a doc or in anyone who's had that life where they have kids and they didn't have a plan. Yeah. Can you share any, any stories? Yeah, I think the, well, I mean, kind of big picture, but I can, we can talk about a couple of cases I've worked on, but I mean, big picture is in the absence of any planning, we're relying on state law to decide what happens. Mm -hmm. And that's really in the context of someone passing away, but, and, and, and really an example that comes to mind, although it's not with a physician client, it's kind of, it's kind of, it's a very sad story. I, uh, I handled a probate matter. I did not, a gentleman passed away uh, very tragically he was married. He had three minor children and he had a home and it was in his name only as well as some financial assets. So when his widow, uh, widowed wife contacted me, you know, we went ahead and helped her transition assets from her deceased husband to her family. And she was shocked to learn that in, in the state of Florida, when that situation presents itself, that she was not going to become the sole owner of her home. And that's because it was just in her husband's name. So the Florida statutes dictated a very difficult result, which was she she ended up becoming a co-owner of her home with her three children. So at some point in the future, when she chooses to sell it, they have they are all going to participate, and they're all going to be involved in the in the sale. I would be willing to bet her husband had no idea that would happen. Huh. Had he known that, he may have done something different. You know, could have been. Uh, the house would have been jointly owned or it, I don't know what they would have done differently, but it, they would have done something differently. So it's essentially the statutes creating a result that's inconsistent with what a family member would want. And so, 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 so the judge, so in that situation, the judge and the probate courts could not override that law right. or this, yeah, I mean, that's, is that a law that's, that's written in Florida? Yeah, that's, that's constitutional and, and our, and supplemented by our statute. So wow. the, we have, and I've, I've actually had three of those cases. Mm -hmm. Uh, one of which was difficult because the person who passed away had, had two children, one of whom was not the child of the widowed spouse and they were estranged. So it created an unbelievably difficult dynamic. Mm. The, the legal work is not difficult, frankly. We can help them retitle it, but then they have to live with that reality, which is really difficult. So that could have been avoided with proper planning. And frankly, it's not very complicated planning. It's mm -hmm. a matter of educating a client. And what I've discovered when those types of things happen, it's frankly, either because someone wasn't interested in doing planning, they procrastinated, they didn't know they needed planning, or sometimes people go on the internet and do their own will. And, you know, they don't know these nuances. And so the DYI version of estate planning can create a, a big disaster. Huh. So st staying away from all of that is really critical. The other, the other one that's, that's not uncommon really from a lack of planning. And, uh, I'm certainly not going to pick on you, Jude, per se, but just to think of someone kind of in your situation, you know, uh, an unmarried physician client passing away with minor children and no estate planning. The result is that the minors uh, would receive assets through a court-appointed guardian. And when they turn 18, the minors will get their – did will receive their deceased father's assets. Uh, they're all underage still, so that's not an issue. But the challenge is, especially with physician clients who have a high income potential, they often have other things like life insurance and so on, that uh, you, you run into a situation where an 18-year-old is will receive a million dollars, $2 million, whatever it might be. And that's a recipe for disaster. I, I haven't met too many 18-year-olds that are capable <laughs> of managing assets. So that situation 
is avoided by having an estate plan. So it's whether it's a, a last will and testament or a revocable trust, just outlining what we want. You know, it's mm-hmm. not unusual to write a plan. And um, I'll take myself, my wife and I have two children who are minors. If we have a plan that says when we're both gone, everything for our children is held in trust until they reach a certain age. I've overridden the Florida statutes. I've decided what I wanted instead of letting the court decide. And it's that's not rocket science, but it's just being thoughtful in what you want for your children mm-hmm. and then putting it in a legally appropriate document. And it's, you know, it's I don't want to dumb down per se what I do, but it's I think it's probably not it's analogous to the work you have. I'm sure you've got patients that'll go on the internet to self-diagnose and when they come mm-hmm. in and They've got articles and stuff of what their problems are. You sort of chuckle and realize you've got a hangnail, ma'am. It's okay. (laughs) (laughs) You're not dying. So uh, we see that too, but it's it's just a matter of understanding the simplicity of planning and then building it to make it work for your family. Yeah, I think you opened my eyes to certain things that I I needed to do also with with the kids because I've seen... Uh, families, you know, and as the families get older and uh, things happen and husbands and wives pass away and the kids come and swarm from different states and, and, and fight for assets. And one of the questions you asked me was, Jude, uh, uh, we're, we're almost done with this. What happens to your assets, your watch <laughs> or your tables and all that? Uh, how do you want that distributed? I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, yeah, you have to distribute it because you've got four kids. So I don't even know if my kids know this, but I put in the will and, and with your help, if there's any dispute at the end of my life, then it needs to be donated. So nothing gets, the kids get nothing if they don't, if there's any dispute. And I thought that was, that was brilliant to, to add because then, you know, hopefully they won't dispute any of the assets that are remaining. But, it, but what it speaks to your point, having a plan for what happens so that there is no, there's less friction is, is great. It's great planning. So case number three, older physician wants to, to sell their practice and exit. Uh, kids are older, they're doing well. Uh, last plan was done 20 years ago in another state. What would be your advice to that physician? So, I mean, probably an established physician with that much experience probably has accumulated some meaningful assets. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure our conversation would, would include an estate tax discussion, which we can talk about as well. But um, as it relates to this not, you know, ignoring the tax for a moment. You know, I, I would treat this at least at a basic level the same as any other client. And I would just, I would ask the really basic question, like, what do you want to do when you're gone and learn about, a, at that point, you have adult children, so you can figure out where they're headed. But it could very well be, believe it or not, a, a simple estate plan if there's no tax planning. You know, we think about where we are in our lives with young children it's it's not appropriate to give them assets outright because they're younger and they, mm-hmm. they can't legally own anything. But as our clients get older, it's kind of an interesting curve that can take place where an older client might say, you know, I've got 30-year-old children who are well-equipped and established and they're in a great place. So, I want them to get assets outright. So, that's, a, that's an interesting starting point. I will pick at that. In fact, as an example, I work for a husband and wife physicians. They've done extremely well. They're very, very successful. And the apples did not fall far from the tree because their two children are likewise physicians who are quite successful. In fact, they're they're more successful than their parents financially. Uh, parents are probably in their mid-60s. Their children are in their mid, mid to late 30s. And so, as a part of their planning, the question I asked was, well, how, where are your kids at? What are they doing financially? And they said, oh, our kids are very wealthy. 
So the conversations changed a little bit. It was mm-hmm. two part. One was, do, you, do they really need your assets? So we wanted to really study that. And um, they concluded that they didn't need them, but they wanted to leave assets to their children. So I instantly thought, well, what if, you know, what if your children got sued or what if your children were, they're currently in happy marriages, but they were to get divorced in the future. What would that look like for your assets? And, and I, I asked them a question that didn't, they, they couldn't answer. So I, I gave them an answer, which was that their assets could be lost. So mom and dad die, they give their wealth to their children. And if their children get sued, it could, could be lost. And again, because they are both, both of their children are surgeons. We were concerned, well, there could be an, an asset protection issue. So their planning actually says, there's two components. The first for their children is that assets that they leave for their children will be held in lifetime trust Mm -hmm. so that a child benefits, but a child is not going to lose it if there's a lawsuit or something of that nature. But then the other part was they said, you know, we we really don't think our kids need everything because of their success. So we're going to skip down and give some money to our grandchildren. They're not going to frankly need it because of their parents, but we want them to know that we love them and they're important. So they ended up incorporating their grandchildren to their planning. So we hmm. we tend to see that as clients accumulate more wealth as they get older, their families expand, and they start to really think about and assess where they want things to go and who's going to most mostly benefit. What you added a little twist to the question, and it was the out-of-state comment, it's worth noting that all states will recognize documents from other jurisdictions. One possible caveat would be Louisiana, which is governed by civil law. So that's kind of the outlier since it was it was owned by France forever, it seems like. Mm-hmm. So you could have some nuances there. But other than that, if a, if a client brings a Georgia will or trust document to Florida, the Florida statutes are clear, we'll honor that document. But I, I usually recommend that, they, that my clients from out of state update at least parts of their documents so that they're governed by Florida law. And to me, that's kind of a common sense thought. It's why would you want a medical directive, let's say that's from where I'm from, Wisconsin, when you're in Florida, because the statutes are different, it's just kind of a disconnect. So mm-hmm. we, we would incorporate the, the, the statutory change, but then really get to the heart of it. What, what do you really want to do for your children? Where are they at in their lives? And, and build a plan that does that. It, it may be that someone comes from another jurisdiction. And their planning is is accomplished. It's doing what they want. Well, then my goal is to make it Florida-based and get out of the way so we don't yeah. have to overdo it. Yeah. And, and so one of the things that happened to, to me was that uh, I had someone involved in my will. I can't remember what which part of the will or, or trust or, or power of attorney was. He was out of the state. And you said something about the person has to be in state in order to be the executor or what? what yeah, person? Florida. So this is not the law in every state, but Florida's got a little nuance. In a last will and testament, we have a person who's called the personal representative or sometimes okay. the term's executor, but it's the person that would carry out a will, which is in a will. And the Florida statutes have this little nuance that essentially says you can name any family member, doesn't matter where they live and they'll be qualified by statute. Or you have to name a Florida resident. So, in other words, you know, your best friend, I don't re- recall where he resides, but, you know, he's if, if he's not here in Florida, he can't serve. Now, with that being said, without obviously revealing confidences of what you've done, leaving money in trust for a child, let's say, which is, you know, it's not a, it's not a will, it's a trust. So, it's an ongoing tool to hold assets and pay those out over time. There isn't a statutory limitation. 
So we'll have some cases where clients come in and say, I've got this, you know, I practice medicine in Kansas City and I've got a 30-year buddy I trust with my life. You know, I want him to do everything for me. We will have to put the brakes on it with one role, which is the executor role, but he may be wonderful on a healthcare directive, on a power of attorney to manage daily or uh, uh, during life decisions, and even mm-hmm. to manage a trust for a child after someone passes. But we would have that uh, that interesting limitation. I know that's not the law in other states. I uh, just I think it's kind of an interesting nuance that we have here in Florida. Yeah. So so I know we've mentioned the the word trust a lot and. Uh, without even defining it, I think you defined it through uh, how you've discussed it. But what is the importance of having a, a trust? Um, I guess what's the difference between a trust and a will? Some people may may not know that difference, and I know I didn't when when we first started. So, so I mean, it's interesting to know both of those have been around for for centuries. But will wills are really a starting point in estate planning. Wills, last wills. Let's clarify. Last will, a last will and testament is designed to create the legal roadmap for a disposition of a person's assets. It really only covers assets that are in, that are individually owned that have no beneficiary designation. And, and the point of a will or, or how wills would work rather is that after I die, let's say, if I have a bank account in my name, we have to figure out how to get it out of my name and give it, get it to my beneficiary. And so the will explains how that's done, but in all states, wills are governed by a probate process which is essentially a judge overseeing the executor or personal representative who will have legal authority through probate to collect an account that's in my name and then follow the wishes inside of the will. So the will you said is of assets that you own personally. Does that include an insurance policy or it's it's a house, a car? and Yeah, it's it's any individually owned asset that has no beneficiary. So if you certain, you know, having a retirement account is an individual asset, but if you have a beneficiary designated on that account, the beneficiary designation is, it rules the day. So okay. it's, it doesn't come into a will. So, okay. you know, the classic assets, you know, you said is a home, your home, if it's just in your name, um, a bank account that's just in your name, a brokerage okay. account just in your name. So if we have that type of asset, so an individually owned asset with no beneficiary designation, wills are very good tools to transition from a deceased person to that person's beneficiaries. The significant downside is that wills are governed by probate that court process of retitling. And, you know, unfortunately, probate gets a, has a bit of a bad reputation, but generally I can tell you, cause we do a lot of probate work. It doesn't have to be overly complicated, but it is definitely a process, which means it definitely takes time and there's a, there's a cost element. And so as clients accumulate more wealth, we will oftentimes talk about a revocable trust, or sometimes we call it a living trust as an alternative to a will. And the basic premise behind a trust is that if a trust owns assets while we're living, and I'll have to, I'll define who's in a trust in a moment, but if a trust owns assets while we're living at the time of death, the transition plan is outside of probate. So in a, in a typical trust, a revocable trust, there's, there's three parties. There's the grantor who makes the trust. There's the trustee who manages the trust, and then there's also the beneficiary, so who who gets to benefit. In a typical revocable trust, by statute, we're allowed to be all three. So I could create a revocable trust while I'm living. 
where I'm the trustee and the beneficiary. And I could then take my individual bank account and put it into the trust while I'm living. And so at the moment of my death, I can sort of mythically pass a baton of control to my wife as a trustee who is unsupervised by a court to play out the trust plan. So it essentially is an, a substitute for a will where we avoid a probate process to make things very efficient. Mm-hmm. When we think about what we started with, with a, a brand new doctor who is just out of school, you know, I know medical school is unbelievably expensive, so they probably have a ton of debt and their income potential is great, but they may not have a lot of assets. That type of a client, in my mind, doesn't need to spend money on a trust. They should just get a will, let's cover the basics, and then as they accumulate assets that would be subject to probate, we can transition yeah. from the will estate plan to one that's that's centered on a revocable trust. Yeah, that's so good. That actually clears it up in my mind as well. Maybe I didn't understand it as well when I was doing it, so um, I appreciate that. And so... You know, what you're telling everyone here is that we, everyone needs a plan, uh, regardless of whether you're a young doctor or an old doctor or someone retiring. Uh, and I think it's a smart way to, smart way to go. And so how do we find you? So I, I'm not sure how, how this will, how you, how you put this out, but I mean, I'm, my website's trustedcounselors.com. I'm in Tampa, but I'm very blessed. I've got clients all over the state. Uh, thank God for that. COVID's made things interesting because we've, we've discovered that we can serve extremely well in a remote setting. I was a little concerned a couple of years ago or a year and a half ago when COVID kicked in that we would have a challenge because as you, you know, uh, face to face time that we've had is highly productive. Uh, mm-hmm. It is a wonderful way to serve, but it's not the only way to serve. So, uh, you know, you could certainly go to our website, you could give us a call. Our phone number is 813-254-0044. And I'm, I'm certainly happy to have a conversation at a minimum, just to give some of your listeners ideas of what planning could look like. As you know, I like to be very free with my time. Uh, I like to educate. I think that's really the secret to being a good attorney is to think about how we educate our clients one client at a time so that they can yep. make good informed decisions. That's that's great. And uh, we'll have your, your information also on the show notes. And uh, I so thank you for being part of the Practice Impossible podcast. And uh, we wish you a great success in your journey. I appreciate that. And it, it's wonderful to have you on our team and my team. And, and just also as a side note, Josh did uh, include uh, some of this information in our free course online to learn about medicareadvantage.com. So we thank you for everything you've done for us and have a great weekend. And before we go, Jude, yeah. as it relates to the course, I would strongly encourage your physician clients to uh, to take a look at the asset protection piece. Yeah. We live in an unbelievably litigious society. And while I know that all doctors will be diligent in their efforts, lawsuits happen. Mm-hmm. And so I think a good, smart asset protection start to a state planning strategy is is critical. So I hopefully they'll have that. I know that information is available and I'm certainly happy to have a conversation specific to asset protection planning with any of your folks as well. Nice. Well, thank you again and uh, enjoyed having you. Yeah. Thank you so much. All right. Bye.